0: Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Welcome to Swisscast. I am your host, Brother Suhaib Webb. In this amazing episode, we are going to sit down and talk with Sister Margarita Rosa. We're going to talk about Muslim-led slave revolts in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century in the Western Hemisphere, and how that plays out now in the current prison industrial complex in the United States of America. Like, love, and support the Swisscast. Assalamu alaikum rahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.
1: Assalamu alaikum Imam Sahib. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Sister
0: Margarita. It is a blessing, mashallah. For those of you who don't know, Sister Margarita is from the DR, the Dominican Republic. She is doing her PhD in princeton mashallah and she has been holding it down for the sake of allah for a while and i have been trying to get you on the show for a few months mashallah
1: alhamdulillah thank you so much for having me i'm so happy to be here i've heard your other shows and it's just a pleasure to be able to reach out to the community and be in conversation with everyone
0: let's just jump right into it let's talk about the muslim ban the notion that like this is the first muslim ban how would you respond to that
1: Right. So a lot of people actually don't know that this is far from being the first Muslim ban in the history of the Americas. Actually, um, Muslims were the first people to be banned from the Americas by the Spanish, who were the first colonizers. So in 1508, 16 years after the beginning of Spanish colonization of the Americas, the governor of the first colony, which is today known as Dominican Republic in Haiti, he sent a letter to Spain asking Uh, the Queen, to stop the importation of slaves connected with Muslims because Muslim slaves were considered dangerous, not only because they tended to run or rebel, but also because the Spanish feared that they would convert the indigenous people to Islam. So the pull of Islam and and the presence that Islam had within Spain and the danger that that brought to the the system that was in place there was uh, considered incredibly dangerous. So several decrees were passed in several islands, prohibiting the entrance of, of enslaved Muslims. Now, white Muslims also could certainly not enter the Americas as, as well as Jews, because this was the time of, of the Catholic Inquisition and to have pure Catholic blood was the only way to, to gain entry into the New World or what was called the New World. However, um, it is significant uh, that that Muslim slaves were were particularly prohibited from coming.
0: So there were a number of decrees that went into play from Spain itself. I mean, the Spanish must have freaked out when they came and realized, hey, there's Muslims everywhere, and they're Muslims from you know yeah. so many different types of ethnicities. But one of the groups I know that was impacted by the decree, I think, in 1526 were people who spoke Wolof, and the reason that's important to me is Nengadev Mangfirek, my sheikh for 10 years was from Senegal. Can you talk about how this decree affected, you know, really, and even people who were raised amongst Muslims, I think, were affected by this decree in 1526.
1: Indeed, indeed. So Wolofs are important in the history of of Spanish laws and the first laws of the new world because they're the first mentioned category of prohibited uh, slaves. So specifically Wolof people from the Senegambian region. And in 1526, there was this prohibition, just general prohibition to all the colonies against Wolof slaves, Levantine slaves, and slaves raised among Muslims. So even if you were a Christian, but you were raised around Muslims, it meant that you could not enter the United States. And this is why this is important. At this time, religion was considered as something like a, a transferable a disease if you will so were the indigenous people to be let's say infected with islam that would make them unviable people to receive the uh to receive the the christian word of god you know this was the belief at this time that that religion was something that could be seeped through and that could enter society so it's very important that islam was considered dangerous to the established order of Spanish enslavement in the new world.
0: And would you say that animus was strictly like religiously driven, politically driven, historically driven, or kind of a combination of all of those things? And then the other question I have for you is, well, then how did they spread Catholicism amongst the people there?
1: Yeah. So, you know, your first question about what issues did it cause? So it didn't only cause religious issues, but also political issues. Muslims were more likely to rebel. Some of the reasons for that are because of the language that unifies them, but also some another reason that we will speak about a little bit later is the fact that the rebellions of enslaved Muslims came out of religious study. Their desire to be free came out of having studied concepts of liberation with shuyukh, you know, who had traveled with them as slaves um, to the new world. So The issue of of slave rebellions among Muslims is actually quite central to the development of the new world.
0: Wow, so you have like the early beginnings of liberation theology uh, happening on the hands of people from Senegal and Gambia who speak Wolof, subhanAllah. And then I I think the second question was, well, in comparison to that, where Muslims were spreading their religion through dawah, obviously, how did Catholicism spread, for example, in the DR and in Haiti?
1: Yeah, well, Catholicism was something that uh, it has an interesting history because there are the colonizers and there are the missionaries. And they actually do have very different projects at the beginning of colonization. So it wouldn't be correct to conflate them and say that the missionaries preferred colonization or even were for enslavement. A lot of the times they were not. But they did want to spread Catholicism through... Um, the the founding of schools um, through the force worship sometimes um, but ultimately a huge component of that was the elimination of islam and the presence of muslims
0: i think it's interesting to note that this 16th century animus towards islam is not directed as we see it now towards mm-hmm. arabs
1: absolutely so we can think about it in terms of that Islamophobia began with black Muslims and black Muslims are central both to the creation of of the Americas, but also to the creation of an Islamophobic system in the Americas. Um, so some people, you know, would even think that Muslims in Dominican Republic, Haiti, Puerto Rico, Cuba, Jamaica, that that's something new, that that's something that came with the Arabs or that came with the people doing dawah nowadays. But it's not new at all. Uh, Black Muslims in those islands are the fabric of American society.
0: So could you elaborate specifically on some examples of slave rebellions that were led by Muslims?
1: Yeah, so some people don't know this, but the first rebellion ever to take place on the Western Hemisphere, the first uh, organized slave rebellion, was in present-day Dominican Republic in Santo Domingo in 1522. And there 20 enslaved Muslims of Wolof origin uh, Performed you know, this rebellion And this completely shook up the whole island And in 1527 There was a rebellion uh, by Senegambian uh, Muslims on the, on the island of Puerto Rico So what we see here is that Muslims basically inaugurated The whole system of liberation And as you said, liberation theology In the western hemisphere And that is not a light fact
0: and then you think about also with Ahbaro Bamba in Senegal leading a non-violent insurrection against the Absolutely. French.
1: Absolutely. People
0: <laughs> of, of, of the Wolof origin have been been holding it down for a minute, mashallah,
1: mashallah. Absolutely. And some historians say that that's why slave enslavement or the forced captivity couldn't survive as well in the Sen- Senegambian region than, than it later did in the Baita Benin in the Nigeria area because of... The presence of this uh, liberationist uh, theology that was very, very active in, in the westernmost uh, part of the, the continent.
0: Could you elaborate on the Great Revolt of 1835? Because that's something I know people know about, but may not know in great detail.
1: Yeah, so at this point, I feel like hundreds, thousands of people have seen uh, some videos that I have made or have read an article that I have written uh, with Yakin and at about this issue of the 1835 revolt in brazil this rebellion was run by enslaved muslims so it was a rebellion of about 600 uh enslaved people in in brazil in bahia and you know what is most interesting about this rebellion which makes it different, is that it was born out of secret madrasas so these were madrasas in which enslaved teachers enslaved shuyukh would teach their enslaved students how to pray. Would teach them duas, and thankfully we still have some of the record records of of those duas. And if you go on the Yakin page, um, they published a, 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 a series of pictures of these duas that I that I composed for them. So it's very beautiful that. Not only was this, you know, a a revolt for the liberation of Muslims in terms of physical liberation, but it was also a spiritual liberation. It was something that was studied for and that was garnered. And it's very, very important for us to think about what it might have been like to be enslaved and have your teacher be enslaved and have your imam be enslaved. And uh, this relationship between teacher and student, uh, for the love of Allah, this, this relationship really garnered this, this rebellion.
0: And is it safe to say that these were people of Tassouf? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. these were people, and that's a, another concern, as we see now Tassouf being used, I've seen it in the yes. Arab world, as Salafism is used also, um, whether it's, it's either or, uh, but specifically it seems like people often use Tassouf as a means to justify going along with the status quo not rocking the boat not partnering with justice movements even in america whereas we're seeing whether it was in Chechnya under imam shamil hundreds of years ago or whether it was here that these were traditional sufi ulema and Shuh and their followers their marids
1: absolutely who were
0: religiously compelled to
1: mm-hmm. work for freedom absolutely would Absolutely.
0: you say that they were concerned with their own freedom?
1: Well, enslaved Muslims, especially in the 1835 revolts, they were not just fighting for um, the the freedom of enslaved Muslims. It was a it was a rebellion organized by enslaved Muslims, but they wanted the freedom of everybody. They wanted to create a state that was was lacking uh, with racialized slavery. Uh, And that, you know, was was able to breed a a society that would allow people ultimately to practice their faith.
0: How does that tie into the current prison system as well as the prison industrial complex today? I think people think that slavery stopped and then like we've just moved on. And in between that is like Martin and Malcolm and, and other people. And talking with you and and benefiting from your scholarship, I get the notion that you feel, and others like Vincent Lloyd, for example,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: that the prison system is really a continuation, uh, a metamorphosis of modern day slavery.
1: It absolutely is. And in many ways, it's even an expansion of it, even if it had breaks in between. So prisons were initially built across the Americas to deal with the so-called problem of fugitive slaves, of slaves who had uh, run away. But we have to be honest, there's no clear line, no linear historical line between you know, slavery as it existed and prisons as it existed. They are not the same. So you saying that it's a metaf- metamorphosis is very important. Rather, we have huge spurts of um, incarceration, especially in the United States after the 1970s uh, and then worldwide.
0: What are the parallels between slavery and the current prison system?
1: Actually, in the United States, as per the 13th Amendment, there is no distinction between an incarcerated person and an enslaved person. The 13th Amendment of the United States says that slavery is prohibited, except among those um, who have been convicted for a crime. Wow, so, that's
0: terrifying. So they're still designated legally as exactly as slaves.
1: And it's in the law. It's not a cover-up. It is not a, a funny use of language. They are literally slaves, according to the law.
0: Wow. And, and I think there's that great documentary on Netflix. I think it's called The 13th.
1: That's a beautiful documentary, you know, with, with scholars who are working on this issue. And this documentary will really help you see the numbers that we're speaking about.
0: There's, there's this idea that once, you know, the word penitentiary is from the word penitence. You know the Mm -hmm. idea that that's the place where you go and you're reformed and you you repent Mm -hmm. for your sins and you know in islam we believe once you've repented you've repented right it doesn't carry over it's not systemic in most cases but Mm -hmm. it seems to me that people are getting out of prison some of the muslim brothers i've ran into and sisters and they still are not able to exercise the full benefits of being a citizen one of those would be the right to vote
1: right so in the united states The people who are on parole or incarcerated or on probation are not allowed to vote. And that number is a staggering 7 million people. So let's think about it this way. In the mid-1880s, when slavery in the United States was abolished, there were 4 million enslaved people, right, who were disenfranchised, not able to vote. Today, there are 7 million people... are not able to vote because of their incarcerated status or because of their status within the judicial system, that means that more people are disenfranchised by the carceral state today than there were enslaved people disenfranchised in the 1850s.
0: So we talked about the idea of designation of someone still being legally considered a slave in prison. That takes this long conversation about the prison industrial complex. Yeah. Number two is taking away... People's right to vote. I believe in Texas, there's a woman now who went and voted. You know, she did everything any normal person would do, registered to vote, was approved, went in and voted. Mm. But because I think she was on probation, she's been brought back into court and charged.
1: Yeah. I mean that's wow. that's
0: horrible. Because wow. because that you is- know, you think as an American citizen, you know, voting voting is like breathing.
1: Mm. So mm-hmm. she
0: her defenses I was I was not aware right uh, and and that's that's something i've seen with people the legal system is extremely cumbersome intimidating and challenging to navigate for someone that doesn't have a background in the law
1: so seven million people all those people don't know that for two years after all of this is over they can't vote um and that is a huge um you know taking away of rights but there are some personal rights right that that incarceration takes away mm. so if there is the right to movement. You know, the UN defines a slave foremost by, uh, as a person who cannot move from where they are. Uh, so this includes uh, people in debt bondage in South Asia, especially, and in, and in South America, people who um, are forced Sex into Sex workers and so on. Absolutely. So forced captivity is one of those personal issues that really gets at the roots of what a slave is right in this in this carceral uh, state that we have but also there is something you know deeper more personal than that which is the dehumanization that takes place when you're layered bunks upon bunks right there are beds that have come out that have three bunks right and they are being put in the main areas prisons are highly overcrowded it is very uh, unlikely in the United States to find a prison that is crowded at 100%, usually is 130%, 150%, or 200%. Mm. Mm. And on the issue of emotions, which matters to me a lot, uh, people who are incarcerated have no right to provide for family and give them their rights. And we know that in Islam, to give your family your rights, To give them their rights is so important to establishing a healthy relationship with them and a healthy unity between your family and Allah. And when you're not able to work and provide for your family or provide for them emotionally, that has to have a huge detriment on your iman and on your relationship with with the deen and on your relationship with your own self-esteem.
0: Just to kind of encapsulate what's going on here, uh, Sister Margarita is saying, listen, between what is defined legally as a slave and what is defined as a prisoner in America, there is a number of parallels. One being designated still legally as a slave. Number two, losing the right to vote. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Number three is forced captivity. And then you talked about the dehumanization, the emotional impact. And here's something that Mm -hmm. I found with brothers and sisters who've come to Masajid out Mm -hmm. of prison is their inability to find work mm-hmm. or when they find work, they are forced compelled actually to take mm. a lesser wage.
1: Mm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the fact that so many incarcerated people go back to jail because they find it safer there or because they find that they have sustenance there or because the recidivism rates are so high such that if you miss a meeting for parole, meaning that if you're on probation and someone calls you at 4 a.m. to be somewhere at 9 a.m. and you're there at 9.05, you're back in jail. right? So there are many limitations to how, to how young men and women and older men and women who have been incarcerated in the United States are able to go back into the system. They're basically isolated from the whole system.
0: You know, I I was on probation as a teenager and <laughs> came out because I had just turned 18. So they put me in the county county system. Um, and then, you know, yeah. was,
1: why do you think? Why do you think you were let off?
0: Uh, I was so, let off because I was white. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt about it. And asked to pay these really kind of crazy fines for probation and community service. Community service also, at least for me, I wasn't paid for it. So I couldn't work and earn the money to pay the fines because I was doing free work for the state. You can really get caught up in the quicksand of the system.
1: Because yeah.
0: if you can't find, like I had to basically work the community service free, you know, mm-hmm. all day long. I work for free. So I, I, I had a night job, but like it was really difficult. Eh? And I started thinking about someone who they couldn't find someone to loan them the money. And I think mm-hmm. we talk about Zakat. And the usages of Zakat contributing to, you know, holding down that recivity number, I think, is something religiously that we have to be invested in. Supporting organizations like Iman, yeah, uh, who are openly and
1: deliberately
0: mm-hmm. engaged in this intervention.
1: And, you know, this is such a beautiful intervention because it draws a parallel between this and the 1835 Muslim revolts in Brazil. Why? Because those slaves actually played pay zakat, even as slaves, even as people that, you know, would not be demanded to pay zakat, they would pay zakat to liberate their teachers. Allahu akbar. To liberate their teachers first. Wow. Price, zakat and, and giving zakat for the liberation of people, not only is it one of the places where we are, you know, legally by by um, sharia told to uh, spend, not only is it is it a prescription upon us, But it is also something that that was done by enslaved people. So we ought to take Zakat uh, and the institution of Zakat for the liberation of people as a connection to our spiritual lineage in the Americas. And, you know, I have some some personal questions for you. So what happened to to your other friends? What happened to your other friends who were involved with you? So the friends
0: that I was involved in a drive-by with, uh, two of them are dead and the other one is still out there. But there was another friend of mine who is still in prison to this day for another crime that he committed. I DJed for him. He was my producer. Um, mm. And he got 50 years.
1: Right. I know that there's this assumption in the United States that we have even heard that, that white people are incarcerated more by police than black people and that white people are shot more by police than black people. Mm. Now, while that is numerically correct, it is proportionally false, absolutely. Yeah, percentage-wise. In the 1970s, black, the black admission rate into prisons um, versus the white admission rates into prisons has been six to one. Mm. So even as there is a, let's say, 50% of white population in the United States or 60% population of white people in the United States and a 13% population of black people in the United States, most people in jail proportionally are black. Mm. You know, I teach at a prison, I teach at a prison in New Jersey, and you know, one day my students talk to me about the, the proportion. Usually in my classes I'll have 10 students and usually I'll just have one of them be, be a white student. And subhanallah, uh, you know, they told me about some of the numbers and it so happens that in this particular prison, a thousand prisoners were black. The next highest number was 200 Latinos, right? Then there were a hundred white people, then six Asians.
0: La ilaha illallah.
1: So from a thousand right to six Mm. right and the next highest number is is 400 there's a huge disproportion right now in in black people being uh incarcerated in the united states so in washington dc three out of four young black men uh can can expect to serve time um behind bars and in the united states One in every ten black men in his thirties is incarcerated on any given day.
0: La ilaha illallah.
1: Right? So you have you and your ten friends and one of you on every day for the rest of your lives will be incarcerated. Yeah, yeah. So, and you know, most people cannot afford a lawyer. And and even if they do have a lawyer, sometimes those lawyers have around a hundred cases at any given time. So So there is a huge discrepancy between what the white community has access to and what the black community has access to and, and the percentages at which these people are being incarcerated.
0: And I don't think people understand the idea of whiteness as a commodity.
1: So something that was very clear to me as a teacher is that the white students showed a much larger Educational attainments, but not because of their own ability because the black students had as much and sometimes more passion for what they were doing. They had more commitment to the work. But the white students simply had gone to other schools, better funded schools, and somehow they had ended up there. Whereas for the black students, being there was a given. It was something that they expected to happen to them, and that their families expected to happen to them, and that the schools they went to expected to happen to them. Mm.
0: So, why do you think this is important to the Muslim community, and how can the Muslim community be allies? Because there's this structural parallels between what happened to enslaved Muslims mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what's continued now to metamorphosize itself within the context of modern America. Why is it important for Muslims to be allies in the struggle and how can they do it?
1: Yeah, you know, and, and it is an important fact that, you know, so many of the people incarcerated are Muslims, but we ought not only to... Um, We are not only to care for the people who are Muslims in chains, but also for all the people who are either potential Muslims or people who um, can have a a love for Islam and can have also a love for society. Uh, So I think that we ought not to address this very, very general and universal issue with internal solutions. We ought to think of ways in which we can, as a community, uh, fight for all people and truly as a community, because black people are more incarcerated than any other race, say that black lives matter without undermining um, what that means for us and our communities and our commitment to our communities.
0: We've seen now the passing of the Muslim, the Muslim ban at the Supreme Court level. Over the last three or four weeks, we've seen, again, the state step in and use incarceration as a physical and psychological tool. How do you yeah. see this kind of as a continuation of the incarceration model?
1: The incarceration of these young immigrants also has to do with the, the establishment, the perpetuation of child prisons. So prisons have become and child prisons have become conditioning centers for then higher level security prisons. But the issue, of, the issue of child migrants is very important to me because when I was younger, for the first few years of my life, I grew up without my parents because they had gone to the United States. And the generations that had come before my parents did come in a similar or identical way to, to the form that we're seeing on TV. Um, and people can interpret that, you know, what I mean by that. So... The reason why I'm in this country is very similar to that of those kids. And, you know, we spoke about the things that are able to happen within a lifetime. Earlier, you spoke about your homie who was incarcerated for 50 years and, you know, has been incarcerated since you came to Islam and the transformation that you have gone through throughout all of those years that he is unable to go through mm. because. He is in that system. I want us to apply that to those kids, so we can imagine the opportunities that we're taking away from these children by not allowing them to develop into their best selves, into their most honest beings, which in many cases might lead them to a to a reality that is much more beautiful than the reality that that they. You know, try to escape with their parents. And one other thing is that we have to stop blaming this on their parents. We have to stop saying their parents committed the crimes, but the kids, they can stay. No, their parents are the first dreamers. So there's no distinction between their parents and them in terms of ambition. Their parents came here to offer a better life to their children, to offer security, to offer life, you know, to their kids. It's important for us to stop using that language that criminalizes parents and that valorizes these children as separate from their parents. They're part of the same mission, and we ought to treat them in unison.
0: As we finish up, can you give some organizations that people can look up and maybe start to think about helping donating to joining working with
1: so absolutely there are three organizations that i really want to emphasize in this podcast so that when we walk away we're able to to contribute to our community so we have the sentencing project and families against mandatory minimums both of those organizations work um work to alleviate the, the huge injustice of high sentences for especially Black and Latino youth. And the Vera Institute of Justice is the third organization. This organization is very dear to my heart. They are located in New York, and they are an organization that works on criminal justice issues, immigration issues, incarceration issues so these are organizations that we can support with our time with our money but also by sharing them and offering them our respect
0: if people want to keep up with you and keep following you where can they do that
1: i have an article written on the yaqeen website called duas of the enslaved and there should be a linked piece on that where you can see the actual images of the duas that the enslaved muslims wrote Um, i also have some talks on youtube
0: Thank you thank you so much for your time and your thoughtful answers to these questions and really sharing your passion with our community so that hopefully we can get involved. Barakallahu Fiki, may Allah bless you. Do you have any final remarks you'd like to make?
1: Well, thank you so much for everyone that joined us and thank you so much for everyone that is doing the hard labor, the hard emotional labor of caring for communities here and around the United States and around the world. So I want to send a big shout out to communities that are working for for poor uh, black and latino youth in the inner cities and who are really concerned with the issues of today it is for you um, that we all do this work so thank you
0: MashaAllah thank you so much and have a wonderful day assalamualaikum
1: warahmatullahi thank you so much <laughs>
2: Bhattanukabal Manoni Mandane مذو اسم the منون who's the one who's the one يا الهي هنا إله الهي توبه قبل الموت يومنا جنور تظن هاد بشير وليس على المغيب بيغنين إلهي يا الهي يا الهي لا إله هنا الهي توبة قبل الموت رين وعين الخلق عينا قد Il est là. Il إلهي قبل منون قرينة بعين في فارهاس لو كل العيون لا يا إلهي يا إلهي. إلهنا. إلهي قبل من وعين كل للهيوني لنا توبه قبل المنون فيا عجبا ونور الاصل في ماء وقين قبل لالياس يلبي ويسمعه المواسم بالأذين الهي 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 يا الهي يا من يا الهي يا الهي يا الهي, إلهي, 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 إلهي يا الهي يا الهي, إلهي, إلهي إلهي توبة قبل المنون وين لو قبل الولادة معجزات تراها أمه دون ظنون إلهي يا إلهي يا إلهي إلهي توبة قبل المنون وين نقي في ولادته عجاب يعيه كل ذي عقل فني يا الهي الهنا الهي قبل المنون ومسرورا في عيوني الهنا الهي قبل المنون يسبح برورين فيسارين مستقيمين الىه يا الهيا يا اله الى هنا الىه توبه قبل المنون موتن وبيت الله فيها قوترا فيا لللائم من شكل من مكين لا اله يا الهيا يا اله الى هنا الىه توبه قبل المنون Mouldn't he womale al bait be'l hata haata? Yukabra sajida al fakin. Mouldn't he? Yeah, he'll